Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel that you have revealed to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you speak to us in your holy word. So teach us now through the preaching of your word and prepare our hearts to receive your word with understanding and with a readiness to respond with obedient hearts. Shape us to be more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text, continuing in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, page 909 in the Pew Bibles. So Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, And Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen, and take to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Last week in our study in the book of Acts, the Acts of the ascended Lord Jesus, we finish the introduction as we saw Jesus ascend to his heavenly throne. Now the apostles are on their own. The question before them is, what will they do? Now Jesus, he left them with clear instructions. He ordered them in verse 5, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of the Father, for you will be baptized 
with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, you may have expected that to be the very next passage, but that doesn't come until chapter 2. Instead, we have here still the second half of chapter 1, which tells the story of what they do while they wait, how the Lord prepares them for what is to come next. And Christ's disciples, both the apostles and all the rest of his followers, they don't sit around, they don't sit there and twiddle their thumbs while they wait, but rather they use this time well. They dedicate themselves to prayer and to the study of God's word. And that prayer, it leads them to great unity. Then God's word, along with prayer, leads them to make a key decision to replace Judas to fill out the number of the twelve apostles. So this morning, we want to consider the lessons this passage has for us, what we can learn from their prayerful waiting, how we are to dedicate ourselves to prayer, and what we can learn about decision-making, how we, too, are to make our decisions based on God's word and with prayer. So first this morning, the disciples are seen here prayerfully waiting, verses 12 to 14. The passage opens on the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus had just ascended. And from there, the apostles returned to Jerusalem. We're told it's a Sabbath day journey. There's a little over a half mile. The distance the rabbis said in those days you could walk while still resting, not working on the Sabbath. Then we're told they went to the upper room where they were staying. How many have asked, is this the same upper room where they had the Last Supper with Jesus? The short answer is we don't know. If it was, perhaps it reminded them of when Jesus had dipped his bread and gave it to Judas, revealing he would be the one to betray Jesus. Perhaps it's the same, perhaps not, but it must have been a large upper room in a wealthy home to hold such a large gathering, as we're told in verse 15, that there were 120 people in all. But then verses 13 and 14 highlight some of those who were there present. Present. It lists the apostles, all the same names from when Jesus first chose them in Luke chapter 6, except for the one who is so obviously missing, Judas Iscariot. But it's not just the apostles. Luke also notes the presence of the women. He doesn't list which women were there except for one, Jesus' mother, Mary. But surely the women would have included the women who had supported Jesus throughout his ministry, the women who had been there at the cross and at the tomb, women like Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, uh, Salome, and his dear friends, Mary and Martha of Bethany. Also, it's easy to forget, but we know that Peter was married. And so it's quite possible his wife was there, and we don't know if any of the other apostles were married and their wives were present. Then we have Jesus' brothers, or technically we'd say they were half-brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Now we're told in John 7, 5, not even his brothers believed in him. But that was before the resurrection. And we know according to 1 Corinthians 15, he made at least one of his resurrection appearances to his brother James. Now that must have convinced him if nothing else did. And he would later become the leader of the Jerusalem church. And you also know him as the author of the New Testament book of James. And apparently his other brothers have also put their faith in him as well. And so all these are gathered together in one place, about 120 of them. And they are obeying the Lord's command to wait in Jerusalem. But what do they do? What do they do while they wait? 
verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. There are two things to note here. They devoted themselves to prayer, and they did so with one accord, or we could translate it with one mind. They did so in unity. The text doesn't simply say that they prayed, but that they devoted themselves to prayer. They persevered in prayer. This is continual, ongoing prayer. Now, Jesus had just left them, and so they are waiting for his gift. And as they are readying themselves for their mission, awaiting the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is what they decide to do to seek the Lord continually in prayer. Now, it's natural for us to ask here, what did they pray? What did they pray for? It doesn't say, but in the parallel passage in Luke, the very last verse of the book, it does say that after Jesus' ascension, they were continually in the temple blessing God, Luke 24, 53. So while this scene is in the upper room, not in the temple, I imagine there was a good bit of praise in their prayers. But I also think that as they were waiting for the gift that was promised, they would be praying for that gift. In other words, they were praying God's promises back to him. They knew that the Spirit was coming, but they didn't know when, and so they prayed for that gift. And isn't this appropriate for us as well? Just because God has promised something, that doesn't mean you don't also pray for that promise as well. We also know that God knows all that we need before we ask it of him, but he still tells us to ask. So we believe that God will fulfill his promises, but it is still of immense value to pray his promises back to him. Just as I said last week, we know that Christ is coming again, But do we not still pray for his coming? We still pray, Lord, come, come soon. To give another example, God has given us the following promise of peace. As we make known to him all our prayers and supplications with thanksgiving, he promises, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 7. You know that promise. So that's a promise, and yet, It is still right, it is still good to pray. Lord, grant me your peace. Guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus, just as you have promised. And the Lord will answer that prayer. And there are so many examples of God's promises in the scripture that we can pray back to God. As the Lord says, I will strengthen you and help you, Isaiah 41.10. God will supply every need of yours, Philippians 4.19. He promises a way out in every temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He promises to hear us in all our prayers, 1 John 5, 14. And then, of course, we have all the promises of his attributes, his goodness, his love, his faithfulness. And so as you pray his promises back to him, we also should not do this. We should not pray his promises alone. We have the example here of how they devoted themselves to prayer and they did it together and it led them to unity to be of one mind and it will do the same in our midst as well I know sometimes it was the case this morning there are a lot of prayer requests at the beginning of the service and it can go a bit long and I know none of you ever think 
this is going to take a long time. And later, Pastor Jim is going to take a long time praying for all these things. And then the sermon is going to start late and the service is going to run over. Perhaps one of you has thought that once or twice. But what we should think is, what a privilege to pray for one another. And as we do this on Sunday morning, and then as we pray for one another throughout the week, the Lord will knit us together as one body. And then let me ask you, I know many of you keep prayer journals. You write down a list of all the prayer requests. Let me ask you, how many of you also write down the answers? You write down how God has answered your prayer so that you can give praise back to the Lord. I mention this here because this passage is already an answer to one of Jesus' own prayers in John 17, where he prayed that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, John 17, 21. That was his prayer for them, but it is his prayer for us today as well, and that unity will grow as together we devote ourselves to prayer. So first we've seen here the disciples prayerfully waiting. Second, let's consider them prayerfully choosing a new disciple, a new apostle. They were praying, but they must have also been reading and studying their Bibles. Because as they did so, Peter comes to conviction about something that they must do. And so it was that in the midst of this prayer meeting, Peter stands up and he makes a biblical argument for the need to select a replacement for Judas, the apostle who betrayed Jesus. Now, it's in the midst of Peter's case that Luke gives a flashback detailing what became of Judas. So let's begin there looking at the account of Judas's end. Verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now there's a parallel account in Matthew 27. And the two accounts, they record each each one different details. They each emphasize different things for their distinct audiences, but the two accounts are easily reconciled. Now Matthew says that Judas, in regret for what he had done, he returned the 30 silver pieces to the temple, but the chief priests, they could not accept it. They could not put it into the temple treasury, so they used his money to buy a field for him. And so the field was acquired for him by the priests. And then as they write for different audiences, they focus on different aspects of his death. Matthew, who is writing for a Jewish audience, writes that Judas hung himself. And for his audience, the Jewish audience, suicide was deeply offensive. This puts you under the curse of God. But for Luke, who's writing to a Gentile and a Roman audience, they would have seen this differently. Many of them saw suicide as morally neutral, even at times as noble. And so Luke emphasizes not how Judas killed himself, but what happened after he hung himself. He writes how his body decomposing in the sun later fell and burst open and his bowels gushed out. So they write different details for a different audience, but the point is the same, that Judas died in a cursed death in shame 
and disgrace. And both give the name of the field, the field of blood. And Matthew records that it becomes a place of burial for foreigners, a graveyard. The end result is the same, that one of the twelve is gone. But let's hear what Peter says needs to be done in response. He stands up and says, verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Note the key words. Scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter argues that Judas' betrayal was no surprise. It's actually a fulfillment of Scripture. Even this most unthinkable apostasy and betrayal is of one of Christ's inner circle. It did not for one second disrupt God's purposes. But as Peter would later say in his Pentecost service sermon, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As he would pray in chapter 4, For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God's plan was not derailed in the least by this betrayal. Although that does not lessen one bit the guilt of Judas and the others complicit in Jesus' death. But the point is that God's purpose stand and scripture is fulfilled. But notice how Peter makes his argument. He is doing so from scripture. And here you should remember that Peter and the other apostles had just spent the last 40 days reading the Old Testament with Jesus. And he is now finally able to see what Jesus had been trying to teach him all along. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, Luke 24, 44. Now Jesus had been trying to teach them this before his death and they couldn't grasp it. But now they finally can. Peter's finally learned to read the Hebrew scriptures Christocentrically, to see how everything is pointing to Christ. Everything is fulfilled by Christ. And so he quotes two Psalms of David, Psalm 109 and Psalm 69. And he's saying these are Psalms of the Messiah. They are fulfilled by Jesus Christ. These two Psalms about a righteous sufferer crying out about those who persecute him and betray him, these are fulfilled by Christ and they apply to Judas, his betrayer. The first quote uh, from from Psalm uh, 69, 25, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Peter is saying this is fulfilled by what happened in Judas's death and his property. It is an accursed field of blood. It has become a graveyard where no one lives. Then he quotes Psalm 109, 8, let another take his office. Now the application of this is clear. This needs to be fulfilled by their action. Now it's important to note here that it is Judas's apostasy that requires him to be replaced, not his death. This would have needed to be done even if he didn't actually die. Now later in the book of Acts, we'll see that James, son of Zebedee, he dies as a martyr. But he is not replaced. 
And in time, of course, all the apostles will die. But only Judas is replaced. And this is why we do not believe in apostolic succession. The apostles were there to lay the foundation. And then that generation passed away. Also, we see here the requirements for a genuine apostle. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. An apostle must be one who walked with Jesus, an eyewitness of the resurrection, chosen by Christ himself. I remember that Jesus had originally chosen the twelve from a larger group of disciples. But even after he had chosen those twelve, he continued to be followed by a larger group of disciples. And so they are able to choose two men who had been with them from the beginning all the way to the end. But why twelve? The number here is significant. Jacob had twelve sons resulting in the 12 tribes of Israel. But now Jesus had come. He had come as the second and last Adam, the head of a new redeemed humanity. He had come as the true and faithful Israel to obey where Israel had failed. He ultimately becomes the remnant of Israel, the remnant of one, the only remaining faithful Israelite. And he reconstitutes Israel in himself. And so the renewed Israel is made up of all those who trust in Christ. But he chooses 12 men to symbolically represent a new beginning for the 12 tribes. As he says to his apostles, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Luke 22 28 through 30. Now these 12, they will propagate this renewed Israel, not through physical offspring like the original 12 tribes, although I'm sure many of them had believing children, but they propagated through their spiritual offspring, those who receive the gospel that they proclaim, as we'll see in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So then, how do they choose Judas's replacement? They put forward their two best qualified candidates, Joseph Barsabbas and Matthias. They pray for the Lord to show which one he has chosen. And then verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. But why lots? The casting of lots was their way of putting the decision in the Lord's hands. We don't know exactly how the method of casting lots they use, but it's equivalent of drawing something out of a hat, flipping a coin, tossing a die, tossing a die, but it's a way of getting a seemingly random decision. But of course, we know there is no such thing as random chance in this world. For the Lord our God is sovereign. He controls all things he controls random chance as it says in proverbs 16:33 the lot is cast into the lap but its every decision is from the lord and so casting lots was a common and approved way in the old testament to seek god's will 
uh, to God's will for a decision. And here it was necessary that Jesus be the one to decide because by definition, an apostle is one who is chosen, one who is commissioned by Jesus Christ. He had to be the one to choose Judas's replacement, just as he had chosen all the other apostles. And that's why, in the end, they put forward their two commandments, their two, uh, their two uh, choices. But it was ultimately Jesus who chose. And so they cast lots rather than choose themselves. The result is Matthias is chosen. He becomes the 12th apostle. Now, some have questioned whether the apostles were right in doing this. They point out that we hear, we never hear about Matthias again in Scripture. This is an argument from silence. It would also disqualify several of the other apostles who are not mentioned again in Scripture. As the book of Acts focuses almost exclusively on Peter and Paul, that doesn't mean that the other apostles didn't do anything of value with their lives. But the main reason this argument is point put forward is because Jesus later calls Paul to be an apostle. And the question is, do we end up somehow with 13, with one apostle too many? But this argument is missing the point. While Luke's account here simply records what they did, it doesn't give an evaluation whether it is right or wrong, I think there is good reason to see that it was necessary for them to replace Judas. First, we can, of course, weigh the arguments and see that Peter makes a compelling biblical case. Second, it was necessary for the full number of the twelve to be present at Pentecost, which, as we'll see next time, was the birth of the church, the birth of God's renewed temple, the dwelling place of his spirit. And third, as Paul himself recognizes, he is an apostle in a different sense. He calls himself as one untimely born in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Jesus appeared to him later to call him to be an apostle. And so Paul is added to the number later. He is not one of the original 12. And so we see Matthias here numbered with the 12. The church is fully prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now I want to consider what is the application for us? What can we learn from how Peter and the early church made this decision? The main thing we see here is that they made their decision based on God's word. They made their decision with prayer. And these are the two foundational elements in biblical decision making. Whenever you are faced with a decision, whether it's a big decision like what kind of career to pursue, where to go to college, who to marry, whether to move to this city or that one, or it's a small decision, whether you want to buy this item or not, or to go to this event, whatever the decision may be, First of all, make your decision based on God's word. For it's God's word that tells us his will for our lives. And I'm not saying here, flip open your Bible, point to a random verse, and hope that it will give you some kind of guidance for the decision before you. Rather, I'm talking about knowing God's word. Know all that it says. Let it pervade your thoughts and your life and your mind so that it will give you guidance. Knowing God's word first gives us Boundaries that we cannot cross. Where God commands, we must obey. Now this will make some decisions very simple. You ask, is it God's will that I date or I marry this woman? 
If the woman is not a believer, you don't have to pray about that because God's word makes it clear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. God's word sets many clear boundaries for us. We look to the Ten Commandments, but that's not all. There are commandments all throughout the scriptures. But God's word gives us more than simple boundaries, more than just yes or no answers. It also gives us principles and wisdom for life. Now, this is also commanded. You are commanded to be wise. And often the difficult decisions are those that require us to apply the principles and the precepts that we find in Scripture. We need the wisdom of the Proverbs, the wisdom of all of God's Word, and we need the experience and maturity to know how to apply it to the complexity, the complexities of life. Often we don't, often you don't have the experience, the knowledge of God's Word yourself to make a decision. And this is why it's an important aspect of wisdom, a key principle being that you don't make decisions alone, but you seek counsel for the difficult decisions you need to make. The fool is the one who listens to no advice or to the advice of other fools. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice, Proverbs 12:15. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed, Proverbs 15:22. And here I'm not just speaking of general advice, but seeking counsel from those who can speak the word of God to you, who can apply God's word with wisdom to your situation. Do you get counsel from mature believers, from the elders of the church for the decisions you need to make? God's word gives boundaries, it gives principle, it gives wisdom, but it also gives freedom. Do you know the first command that God gave to Adam in the garden? It wasn't to forbid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but first he said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Then he forbade that one tree. The simple fact is that if God hasn't forbid something, if there are no biblical principles against it, then it is permitted. And he gives great freedom for us to enjoy the good world that he has created. In fact, scripture is clear that it is deeply wrong to bind someone's conscience to forbid that which God has allowed. Paul calls this the teaching of demons. Those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving, 1 Timothy 4.3. I don't know how Roman Catholics can read those verses and not shudder with fear, for they're forbidding of marriage and foods. But the point is to know God's word, keep the boundaries, know the principles, live with wisdom, and then enjoy the good things that he has blessed us with, giving thanks to him. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. And so first, you are to make decisions based on God's word. Clearly, you need to know God's word to do that. And second, you are to make your decisions with prayer. You saw how the apostles' decision was made in the context of a prayer meeting, which then led to biblical study and discussion that then led to more prayer for the Lord to guide in the final decision. The whole thing was bathed in prayer. And so in your decision-making, let prayer dominate. Pray before the fact, pray after the fact. 
How should you pray? Pray for a growing knowledge of God's word so that you can make your decisions based on his word. Pray for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him, James 1.5. Pray that the Lord would be sanctifying you, that he would reveal any sin that's affecting your motives, affecting your decision-making, that he would root it out. Pray for submission and humility. It's one thing to know the right thing to do, but pray that God would give you the humility to submit to his will and to do it. Often you know what you should do and you aren't quite willing to do it. Pray for God's glory. Pray that the decision would ultimately be not just for your good, but for the good of others, for the good of the church, most of all, for God's glory, that his name would be lifted high. Many people judge their decisions based on a sense of peace. And as I mentioned earlier, God does promise that as we pray with thanksgiving, he will guard your hearts and your minds with his peace that passes understanding. But in this, we do need to trust and obey, to obey the principles of biblical decision-making, and then to trust his promises. Yes, you can pray for peace, but Pray to the Lord his promises, but don't expect his peace if you've taken shortcuts, if you haven't made your decision based on God's word and with prayer. Only when you've made your decision in God's way will he ultimately grant you peace. Now let me demonstrate to you this with an example which will also answer a question that I'm sure many of you have from this passage. What about casting lots today? As I've said, I think the apostles were right to cast lots in this situation, but this was an Old Testament method for discerning God's will. And this is right before Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we never again see the use of lots in the New Testament. For God's Spirit has come, and we are now to make our decisions based on his word and prayer with the help of his Spirit to guide us and to grant us wisdom. On his excellent book, which I would recommend to you if you want to go deeper into this topic, Decision-Making and the Will of God, by Gary Friesen, he tells the story of a couple who were divided on the question of whether or not to have another child. And because they couldn't decide and they were torn, one wanting one thing, one wanting the other, they decided to cast a lot to, in their case, to flip a coin. Heads up, we add to with the quiver, tails, we're done. So they flipped it, it came up tails, no more babies. Now, of course, God was sovereign over the coin toss, but they were still deeply unsettled. What did this mean? How did they interpret it? Was God specially revealing to them his particular will for their lives, that he desired them not to have another baby? I don't think that they could conclude this, and I think it's deeply unwise for believers today to put this sort of stock in a coin flip. I think this is testing God. He calls us to make our decisions on the basis of the word of God and with prayer. And you can't shortcut this process. Now, there may be a circumstance where you you come to the end of it. You've studied God's word. You've prayed. You've sought counsel. You have two completely equivalent options, morally equivalent, both equally wise. And so you are free to choose and you don't have a preference because you are free to choose one or the other. In that case, choose the one you prefer. But if you have absolutely no preference in that case, 
Perhaps you cast a lot, perhaps you toss a coin, and the Lord is, in that case, providentially sovereign over it. There's nothing wrong with that, but don't use that to neglect your duty to make your decision based on the word of God and prayer. Now we've seen today how the Lord Jesus is at work in the church as she devotes herself to prayer and the word of God. That is our calling, brothers and sisters, to devote ourselves to the word of God, to devote ourselves to prayer. He did this in the earliest days of the church, preparing them for Pentecost, and he is still guiding the church today, directing us daily by the word of God and by prayer, so that we might live lives that bring him glory. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is on his heavenly throne, that he is reigning for the sake of his bride, the church, that you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. And so, Father, we pray that you would grow us in prayer, that we might daily, hourly, constantly be communing with you. Knit us together more and more as a church as we seek your face and as we carry one another's needs and concerns before the throne of grace. And help us in all the decisions we make to make them as you would have us based on your word and in prayer. Grow us in your wisdom that we might walk in a way pleasing to you in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.